Welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast series in conjunction with Soundworks Collection. Um, this is our spotlight on the Oscars series of podcast conversations. And we're talking with the artists who've been nominated for Academy Awards for Best Sound Editing. And we're thrilled to be here with Lon Bender. Thank you uh, Yeah, who's nominated this year for The Revenant. Um, and Lon, um, this is certainly not your first time to go to, uh, to the show. You've been nominated. This is your first fourth nomination this is the fourth nomination and yeah. you won for braveheart one for braveheart was nominated for um blood diamond for the obscure but wonderful film drive and the not obscure and wonderful film revenant right drive i was i, I like i you guys should have won for that i thought that that was just a fantastic that was a fantastic sounding film and Thank you. We had, you know, Nick Reffin, the director, yeah. was the first director to come into my studio and not go away when we did notes. And so, you know, he came in to do a playback and to review some stuff. And two weeks later, he left. And we had the sound of the movie sort of <laughs> settled into shape. And uh, it was a great evolution for me and my career, actually, in how to work, work with directors and utilize the tools in this space in order to involve them in the process of the structure of the sound and the sound design from the beginning. And that happened on Revenant as well. Well, so, yeah, that actually is a good segue into, let's just describe the space that we're in. So we're here at, we're here at, the, at the Formosa Group, which is, which is your, your home base. Right. Um, and I would, I would describe this as a, as a sound design room. Um, but you've got a mixing board here, and it looks like, uh, I'm looking at the speakers mounted in the ceiling, it looks like you're, you're Dolby Atmos capable in this room. True. So why don't you just describe for the audience a little bit about like what this space is and what you do here. Cool. Well, this space is based around the Pro Tools 12 format, and it has a 9-1 bed, which is the, bed, the Atmos bed, which includes two side surrounds, as well as the rears, and then four overhead speakers, which are utilized by the objects in the Dolby Atmos system. Um, I also have a D-Command mix console, and I basically uh, use this space to take material that the team that is part of my uh, design, effects, Foley team, uh, backgrounds, when they used to submit material, I would make notes, and they would change them, uh, over time. And now, uh, as the technology has become more friendly, I really have taken a position to get involved with the material from the get-go and start mixing it here in this space. Mm -hmm. So this space um, translates very well to large theaters. Um, we've done all kinds of films from Hunger Games to Drive to uh, Revenant. We did not do in this room, but we had an identical room out at Lantana mm -hmm. where I was working at the picture editing department for mm -hmm. several months. Um, and then we also have in here these overhead speakers, which are set to utilize a um, Atmos field design that I came up with last year for F Monk Comes Down from the Mountain, which uses, utilizes all the pro, uh, the pro Tools panning and blows them into three-dimensional fields that you can then uh, shape any way you want by using the objects as waypoints in space mm. and then create s different shapes in the ceiling or in the walls and then blow things through those shapes using all the, the panning from Pro Tools. Oh, interesting. So it was a really great innovation, and uh, we were able to do um, native Atmos mixing, basically without creating Atmos tracks, any uh, any uh, 
region that uh, is in a session could be accessible from a dynamic busing system I came up with using the sends instead of the auxes. And so we could then bus things into these different uh -huh. fields and uh, all the panning the editors did during the process of production would uh, instantly go into the uh, Atmos overheads. And my man, Doug Hemphill, who mixed that film, uh, you know, we flew through an Atmos mix and it was extremely easy to use and very successful. So the work that's done in here is work where there's contemplative time, mm -hmm. where you can take your time to go through things, take your time to react to them. I work very closely with my sound team on all the work that I do. I'm not a lone, lone fish out here. <laughs> I love the collaboration with people. And um, we uh, spend a lot of time working through the material in a space like this. And um, they sometimes go back and make updates, but we also will just do a lot of fixes in here. And as I said, directors really enjoy this kind of environment because it's a, uh -huh. uh, an environment where there isn't a lot of pressure, like a mixing stage. where Yeah, you you're spending thousands of dollars an hour on a mixing stage. Right. Yeah, right. so you can kind of come in here and, and play a little bit more. Right, and that's proven to be very successful for so them. But and you you were saying a lot of so a lot of your your editors will be working in in five point one or seven point one as well. So I'm, I'm I'm just curious about that. I mean that you know historically in our business there was kind of a firewall between editing functions and mixing functions, and obviously the technology has made that crumble over time. How has your relationship with mixers changed as a result of kind of the blurring of that line between between the two functions? You know, the relationship has changed considerably between sound uh, editorial and sound mixing as the, you know, all of us are, are a community of sticks going down the river of technology. <laughs> so there's no way for us to go back. It is what it is. And there's and no you, use fighting it, right? Yeah. And there's no use fighting it. And I think what happened when it, this first transition first happened is mixers were very concerned that they wouldn't be able to mix anymore and that right. people that were working in this environment would be doing mixing. Like, what are we going to do? But the way I view it is we can start with a really well-realized sound of a film, work with the director, they understand what they're getting, they understand how it's gonna be, and when you get to a mix stage, you're then relying on mixers who are much better at dealing with compression and equalization and reverbs than I am, mm -hmm. because I don't work that part of the process all day, every day. I've got a lot of other responsibilities in my job as a sound supervisor. Right. So I am not uh, looking to be a mixer. I like to go to a stage and have the mixer, you know, be driven by the mixers because then it's their turn sure. to take the material that they don't have to spend the time. I think they like not having to spend the time to figure out the basis of how should something sound. They can get it and the faders are pretty much at zero and then they can start to work it and they have time to really make it incredible, and incredible and beautiful. And we had this experience on Revenant, you know, uh, the mixers, um, John Taylor and um, Frank Campagna and Randy Tom, they all did an amazing job in just taking where we had gone and elevating it to such a level yeah. that it just, it really matched the visuals and, and added to them in every way. So. Those, that relationship and that collaboration is very strong still. There's no uh, moment in the near future, in my mind anyway, right. that the mixers will not continue to elevate things that the people in the editorial world uh, create. And I don't sense that, certainly not on, on kind of bigger A-list films, I don't sense that the mixing schedule has gotten shorter as a result of, of changes I mean, it's you always have specific films where it's compressed, obviously. Yes. But uh, I don't 
I don't, I don't sense that people are lopping off, you know, days uh, on the mixing stage. It just seems like um, uh, the work has changed. The work has changed, and like I said, it used to be that you couldn't tell how eight sounds and eight tracks would play together until you went to a mix stage, right. and the mixers would put up the faders, and you'd finally get to hear them together. It used right. to be that you would imagine, you know, the tire going into the rut and the splash and the tire hitting and the impact and the sound of the gravel and whatever it was to make a scene really moody, and that was the fantastic thing about imagination is by not being able to mix everything together, you had to imagine what it sounded like. And that was how I think a lot of people's ears became trained for right. many, many years. However, the advance in technology and being able to play all these sounds together has completely enlivened the editorial process. For me, anyway, it's, it's, it's made it a pleasure to be moving forward in this industry where I can hear those sounds all together. I still, my imagination is still fertile, but I am now able to actually integrate new ways of hearing those things and being able to expand on them in a way that I might not have been able to before. Well, and 10 or 15 years ago, there would have been no reason for a director to come in and, you know, spend time with you during the editorial process because there was really nothing to hear in that way. You know, it was, it was, you'd just meet each other on the mixing stage for the first temp mix, and that's when they would hear stuff for the first time. That's exactly right. The temp mixes were the first time that they were hearing things, and they would they so might yeah, hear a key a, scene it was or a, a couple key scenes. sobering experience, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, there are those, yes. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the times they're really happy to hear their movie come to life. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as soon as you put an image with a sound, it just makes everything just sparkle. And, I, you know, most directors, uh, they really enjoy it. They yeah. get a chance, their movie all of a sudden has some dimensionality to it. Right. And it has some, some depth, and there's these little sound hooks that take them through scenes. So they, they want their story to be told, and they want it to be in a way that's going to keep moving the audience forward to the next step. Yeah. So you mentioned um, that you had sort of a, a kind of a facsimile of this room set up over at Lantana on Revenant uh, with the picture editorial team. We did. So, uh, like, why is that a good idea? And what did having that that proximity to the picture editor and the director uh, do for you uh, and, and for the project on this particular film? Well, I think that we fulfilled the goal of being able to have access easy access to the director, to Alejandro, and to Stephen Mirioni, our film editor, but also for them to have access to the material. Mm -hmm. So when we started in uh, May of last year, one of the things that was very important to Alejandro and Stephen was getting a sound f within which the movie could even be viewed. So we had the great production tracks of Chris Dusterek, and those were full, but they weren't giving us a sense of place and mm -hmm. a, a sense of organics and a sense of distance and a sense of depth. And one of the things right off the bat that Alejandro asked for was, let's go through all the scenes from the beginning to the end and let's build this, the world of this movie. So then I can view the movie with my editor and we can actually get our minds away from some of our production problems and get into the space. And then we can mold the movie visually and go through the editing process. So what, what point in the editing process did that happen, did that you went over there and started doing that work? Was it early on in the cut? It started, um, the team started in May. John Title, my key sound designer, who did all of the backgrounds and all the sound design for the whole film, did a fantastic job. And my key collaborator, um, he started in May and I started in the beginning of June. And 
they had finished shooting in end of March. So this was, was right after they finished, really shortly after they so yeah, well, they weren't actually finished because there were some snow issues and um, <laughs> we, there was more stuff to do. <laughs> there's a, this was, a, this was a, a, a notoriously difficult shoot, uh, you know, for, from all the, all the reports because they, they were chasing snow. Correct. For, uh, snow and uh, weather. Uh, and we had the same issue sure. because um, I was, it was evident to me right from the get-go that the uh, footsteps was a huge component of guys in 1820 in a movie where you're in the snow for two and a half hours. Yeah. So I early on or right away said I want to take a Foley team and I want to go to Colorado where there's still snow and we want to make recordings there. So you didn't try to fake that on a Foley stage. You actually you wanted all, to go and we went to Colorado for a week. We made over 300 recordings. We loaded w- the film we had onto iPads and iPhones, uh-huh. and Katie Rose, uh, who's a wonderful Foley artist, uh-huh. who was willing to brave the brave snow, the uh-huh. and Charlie Campagna, and uh, I went to Colorado, and we went into all different forms of, uh, you know, the different passes, where it was, we were mostly above 10,000 feet, because it was already, snow was being lost, Sure, but there was deep snow, and icy snow, and gritty snow, and wet snow, and snow falling off branches, and we shot um, many, many recordings to picture, and everything was edited and created uh, from real recordings, including all the horses as well. All the snow stuff was real because I really felt like you guys performed the horses. No, we had a, we had a wrangler. You had a wrangler. Yes. So you actually had horses up there recording as well. We did. That's amazing. We did. Yeah, we did onboard stuff. We did all the stuff you know in different surfaces and all that, and. You know, the tracks had ambience to them. So yeah. in a way, it created an ambience track from the high mountains within the Colorado snow recordings, we call them. Yeah. And um, it was such a, I don't know, I think it was very successful. It was a large part of the organic nature of the film. Well, I wanted to ask you how that kind of affected the overall uh, feel of the film. Because, you know, I, I think that one, one thing that has always struck me about being in snowy places, which we don't have a lot of in Southern California, but when it does happen, it's um, it can be strangely quiet when a place is blanketed with snow. That seems that seems to absorb a lot. Yes. Um, and so and different snow, different densities of snow reflect sound in very different ways. So even the footsteps that you're recording right. will be reflected in the different densities of the snow. So we got natural reflections, and we also I was very uh, particular about the mic location mm-hmm. and the shot. So if the camera was seeing glass coming towards the camera, whether he was crawling on the ground mm-hmm. and seeing where he comes out of the grave or going to see his son or whether characters walking f- from camera and away, uh, we were very particular that we shot every um, bit that we could with the perspective, right. the microphone perspective to camera. So you actually got natural, because you know, the uh, reflections change as sure. things go off mic or they go farther away. Sure. And same when they get closer. So you got a lot of that dimensionality that I think uh, contributes to You never could have faked that on a Foley stage and then during a, during a Foley pre-dub. It, it, just, it, it wouldn't have been the same. It would not have been the same, for sure. Yeah. I first did uh, outdoor Foley on the Hunger Games. I did all of the stuff that was in the game outdoors. Huh. Um, but we didn't really have... We didn't take it as far as we did in this film. Now, I, I would imagine that that introduces control issues and other noises. In and the, they were in there. And yeah. it was great. So there was some birds so here and there. There was some water dripping here and there. And it really didn't matter because those things were in nature. 
and they appeared then in the film and added to this like new production track that could play with Chris's production tracks. Yeah. So when we had ADR and we had all, you know, which we did have a, a lot of ADR, particularly Arikara and Pawnee ADR, uh, there was a lot of natural backgrounds that worked from the recordings that we made. That's great. Worked. Um, there are a lot of really long shots in this film. And I mean, I can just imagine it, it is, is Alejandro, the kind of director who is, who is, you know, is he giving an, is he, is he giving direction through the takes or how usable were the production tracks that came back uh, from set on a, on a bunch of that material? Uh, we used a great deal of the production tracks, actually. There was a lot of differing conditions that they dealt with. Chris did a lot of 7-1 recordings, which we utilized for ambiences and river material. Um, and the production track. So this is the production sound recording. Production sound recording. Did seven point one recordings on set? He did. Interesting. He didn't do. I wouldn't say on set. He did wild seven one recordings. He wasn't doing it for sync sound. He, sure, but he, he was wanted doing to get ambiences for you. Yeah. 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 And How was he miking? What sort of? Do you know what kind of miking setup he was using to for to get? He ambiences? had. I don't know, remember the exact name of the uh, system he used, but it was a system that was a pre-organized arrangement of microphones. Interesting. Which did include, you know, LCR surrounds and some overheads, uh-huh. and so we had to some bake some of those overheads into side surrounds and all because sure. there isn't an overhead in the seven one format. Right. Um, but the f- material was really full, and we used it for some voice material we did with the Indians when they're first being attacked, and some whispers, and some really moody things. And the production tracks were mostly usable. I mean, there was production tracks through most of the movie. There were not large swaths that were not usable because Alejandro was talking or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, there, of course, he was giving direction uh, along the way, and there was conversation that happens, but it was not something that was our biggest issue. There was some natural noise problems that were uh, a challenge well so that was my next question which was you know what what, what were some of the harder issues for you on, on on the show from a from a production track standpoint we had a lot of issues where there was just uh, the river was a very noisy component it has a very wide band it ends up just being white noise basically right white noise but it also has a, f- a fair amount of low mid-range in it as well <laughs> right where the voices are so you start getting into the one and a half and 2k area uh-huh. and so some of the voices were a challenge but we wanted to save as much production as we possibly could right so rx became are, a these tool. are tough performances to replicate in, on the adr stage exactly but you know uh, mr DiCaprio was a great uh, collaborator and he was willing to do whatever it took and Tom Hardy and you know those guys were willing to do whatever it took to m- get the performances for Alejandro and make it um, make it clear. And our ADR supervisor, Lisa Levine, was uh, you know worked for months and months in getting new recordings. Uh, we, we traveled. We went to get Indian recordings, mm. in different locations. Um, we had uh, translations that had to be done of the Pawnee mm. and of the Arikara. And the Arikara is a uh, is a language that is not uh, spoken by many people in this country anymore, or in the world anymore. I think there's less than 50 people. Mm. So trying to get this all to be proper uh, and to get clear recordings that we could then control and that John Taylor could then fit into the space with uh, all the backgrounds and all that uh, we put in was uh, a big job. But it became pretty seamless. What were the ADR sessions like on this on this film with uh, with Leo and Tom? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of, of, of very physical stuff happening in the film, obviously. 
Yes, and you know, I can't really speak to that because the only ADR sessions that I was directly involved with, because Lisa Levine handled all the ADR sessions, was some outdoor recordings we did with the group. We went up to Big mm -hmm. Sky Ranch over here north of LA, and we followed our same sort of view that we should do outdoor recordings. Alejandro was very interested in uh, natural organic recordings, mm -hmm. and we did uh, Bar Mark Sussman and his group. They all came out with a couple of buses, and we had people spaced uh, several hundred feet away from mics and closer, and we did walk-bys and the same sort of approach as we did with the live foley. We wanted perspective, uh -huh. and we wanted realism. And uh, were you doing that mostly for the for, for Native American uh, sequences, or, or it was mostly for the the outdoor stuff that we did here was mostly for the trappers, okay, and for the sequences in the camp uh, in the forts where we had people at different distances from the mic. And I believe we did do some. Uh, uh, Indian dialect as well outdoors. Mm. So there was a several sessions uh, and that took place over the course of a couple different months. So obviously, I mean, this was a big show with, it was, it was very, as you point out, they were still shooting, you know, well into the summer um, with a very compressed post-production schedule. Uh, I know you, you worked with uh, Martin Hernandez uh, on the film who has uh, worked with Alejandro many, many times back to his earliest films. Uh, what was the collaboration uh, like for you and Martin? How did you, you know, divvy up who was going to do what? And mm -hmm. did that, how, how did that kind of uh, organically happen? Well, you know, it, it did organically happen, actually. That's exactly how it happened. He, um, I started out the film and dealt with all the crew and all the logistics all through the summertime. And then Martin came and got involved in uh, the midsummer. And he was very engaged with the, uh, with the music uh, editing and the sound design and the integration of sound design and music and he pushed that agenda forward for a long period of time because mm -hmm. it, it was a major component of the sound of this movie it the wasn't music just, is really important and it wasn't just yeah. music it was he created all these fantastic little haikus he called them oh really yes and they were really really and we should uh, point out he sh you share the nomination with him yes uh, on the film yeah. exactly and so he got involved uh, very heavily in late August as we were heading toward the premix. And then uh, when we got into the final mix, he and Alejandro have a very strong shorthand. They've done right. so many movies together. So he became very involved with the mix at that point. And he took Alejandro through the end of the mix. And he mm -hmm. really uh, delivered, you know, helped understand the integration with music and understand the integration with the effects and all that. And so he was on stage with them. and was a major uh, collaborator to, yeah. to help bring this movie home. So there were phases of this project, basically. There was the sort of the prep phase, which I was most involved with, mm -hmm. and there was the mix phase, which he was most involved with. And I think everyone delivered what they had to deliver right. because there was a lot to get there. There was yeah. all the so foley, all the production tracks, all the reco field recordings, and all of our creation of the sound design and all the elements that had to come together. Yeah. We had a crew of like 25 people. That's amazing. And then early on also, we were working, uh, I had just been on the film like three weeks, three or four weeks in June, uh, back in, I, I came out to it last November to do the opening battle sequence when they were still shooting, oh. uh, before they even went through the winter, Sure. Um, which proved to be very successful, and that actually a big part of that plays in the movie. Um, but uh, Randy Tom got involved as a sound designer with the bear sequence in late June. The famous bear sequence. The famous bear yeah. sequence, and he did a fantastic job, and you know, he came in and Alejandro's like, you know, I need you to deliver me a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and I need a guy that can concentrate on this. And John right. Title was concentrating on all the backgrounds and very heavily engaged in the, the sound of the overall movie. So Randy came in and did a great job with the bear, and we um, 
you know, it, it lives in the movie today. It takes a village, doesn't it? It does take a village. <laughs> and we work with all kinds of people. I mean, it's a collaborative sport. You know, sure. this is what we do. We right. all work together with groups of people. Yeah. You know, I always say if I wanted to work alone, I'd be a painter. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think I mentioned to you before we we rolled. We have a lot of, of film students um, and, and people who are starting out careers in sound that listen uh, to these podcasts. One of the things I wanted to just talk with you about is, you know, I, w- I was looking over the list of directors that you've worked with in the past. And there's some pretty heavy hitters on this list. You've worked with Michael Mann and Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma and Ed Zwick, you know, multiple times. So I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how, you know, y- your relationship with a director, how you approach a director to start a new project. Um, I, I imagine you're going to tell me that the nature of that collaboration is very different with each director depending on how they work. But how do you how do you start that process? How do you sort of figure out what your you know how, the what the the interaction between you and a, and, and a director on a particular job is going to be? You know, it all starts with the script. I mean, the first thing I will do when I get involved with a film is I'll get a hold of the script. I'll read it straight through once without taking any notes, just to get a vibe of it and what's going on. But then I'll go back through and take notes for conversation, for key conversation. And then you sit down and you have a chat about what are their ideas and what are some ideas that we can do. And it depends when you're getting involved with the project. Mm-hmm. Like if it's before it's shooting, then you have a lot more involvement with and the production ideal. design. And all. Right. It's ideal. And it's right. happened. It doesn't happen all that much, but it has happened on a, a number of films, including Hunger Games. And we had meetings with Tomasina, the production designer, and before you know it, Gary, and the, the director, Gary Ross, and we were having conversations about sound that turned into production design conversations for him. Right. So I think that sound... Because you can take a look at a script at that point and suggest, well, there may be certain ways that, that sound could help you tell this story. Yeah, to yeah. help with transitions or to help with mood or to help with things that maybe they should make sure they put in the scene so you have something to key off of right? or a character trait or something, you know. Um, so sound is a trigger for people in many, many ways. We all have memories of sound. It's a magical thing to give your ears a chance to listen to what's happening around you, which I would say to any young person that's interested in sound, that's one of the first things they should do is they really should close their eyes, listen to what's around them in different kinds of places, Mm -hmm. and understand what sounds make them happy and what sounds make them stressed and what sounds affect them. And then they'll be able to take that and use it as their art later once they create some sort of emotional palette. Because it's all very emotional. You know, you can't see any of these sounds. Mm -hmm. They're all like orchestrations in a symphony. And the ear and the eye put them together, which is a fantastic thing, which we need because we're faking stuff all the time. Right. Right. I mean, that's what we do. It's all like smoke and mirrors. Right. So the fact that the mind does that is really important. And then you can use your imagination to bring to the table some of your own experiences and, and feed them into the relationship. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easy. And, you know, sometimes you're batting them all out of the park and sometimes you're doing a lot of revisions. But it's all part of the process. And, um, you know, all films have that in common. There's no, there's no film you do that you walk in, you put it all down, you go, thanks a lot. You know, <laughs> we got it. <laughs> we got this one. <laughs> that's right. And yeah. some are more difficult than others. That's for They sure. are. And that's yeah. fine. You know, I mean, that's part of what you're, what we're doing this for. Well, there's this, I, I find that there's a certain amount of stress baked into this part of the process because, you know, 
this is one of the last things that happen in the process before the film goes out. And Truly. I think for most directors, there's a little bit of a reality check because there's always, you know, usually there's, an, there's another part of the process where something miraculous can happen to solve the problems. But I think there's a moment of, of moment of reality that sets out on the mixing stage when, you know, you sort of realize, like, we're basically done, right? So what's not working is still, you know, it's, there's they, they, that can be tricky sometimes to manage and navigate. Right, because the, the sound isn't always the thing that's not done. Right. And we will keep working until it's really, like, ripped out of our hands because there's always more stuff you can do, but there's image things you have to deal with. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of things. So our part of the process is uh, is under pressure always because we are the last thing to have happen. And what's amazing is with the new digital release technology, we're finding that you're redoing stuff. So I mean, I redid some scenes on this Monk Comes Down from the Mountain film on the Sunday before a July 3rd release in 12,000 screens in China. And we were on the mixing stage the Sunday before which was incredible. Yeah. And you still had to make all the Atmos versions and the 5.1s and the 7.1s and all the down mixes. Yeah. And the release formats now are just as sophisticated as the things in here. Mm -hmm. So the ability for directors to keep going and maybe even keep going. Well, I was about there to say. I say. That, that, <laughs> then that was the mix that went to the theaters. Then, Correct. Yeah. They got several more bites at that apple. Yeah, and that's what happens um, because with some of these downstream formats, I think, and I, I'm not saying it's the case on any given movie, but the downstream formats give directors a chance to have a version that's that version right. or this version, and so they can try stuff. Yeah. So it's a, it's a continued uh, process for sure. Yeah. But I just want to make one more comment about the, the young people and the kids because that's really important. You know, in terms of their being in this world and getting involved with this world, there's a couple things I tell all of them. You know, one of them is you got to learn how to use Pro Tools because mm -hmm. for better or worse, this is the machine that everyone's using. It is the ubiquitous tool. It's yeah. the ubiquitous tool. And so until that changes, it actually makes it easier for them. They don't have to learn 10 tools. So learning how to use it and using it as much as they can in their own spare time is very important because you need a certain facile ability with your hands and your ears to do stuff that you're thinking of. Right. So you don't just learn it and then set it aside. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, oh, find a way to get into the ballpark, get into the stadium where something's happening. What I mean by that is get into a place like Formosa or wherever it is where you can be there no matter what you're doing whether you're actually getting to do some sound work yet or not. But if you're there, then the moment comes when someone says, I really need someone to help me. And they go, oh, yeah. And if you're not there, they're never going to call you. That's right. If you're there, there's a chance they'll call you. Yeah. And those, I think, are the two most important things that a young person trying to find a way in, you know, deal with the emotion of sound, understand how to use the tools, and get yourself into the game. Those things are imperative, and it's worked. I've seen many young people come up. I'm very proud to have helped many young people come through, mm -hmm. and you know, you see them come in and their eyes light up, and you know, they get all excited. And that's what we kind of, you know, that's all we can leave behind right. is the ability for those people to come in and become collaborators. 
So it's, uh, it's real important. Well, that's great. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Uh, thanks for having us over to the studio, and uh, certainly best of luck in a, in a couple of weeks uh, with The Revenant. Thank you so much. We're all hoping that we go all the way. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so in, uh, in the second part of our conversation today about The Revenant, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with a guy that I've known for a little while, Martin Hernandez. Martin, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. If this sounds a little odd, it's because we're doing this via Skype. Martin, who may be the busiest man in show business right now, we got to say hello very briefly in Los Angeles right after the Academy nominees luncheon, but now we're catching up with him in London just a few hours before he goes off to the BAFTA Awards. And unfortunately, with all this travel, Martine has caught a cold. But I'm still, I'm, I'm so, I'm so thrilled with the, all that you're still making, you know, making the time to talk with us, Martine. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure, Glenn, to see you again, and thank you for this kind of invitation. Thank you. So, you know, Martine, I want to talk with you about the Revenant, but uh, you know, obviously, but I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, point out to our audience. So this is this is your second Oscar nomination. You got nominated last year for Birdman. And you've kind of been at, at the, the forefront of, uh, I think, what, what some people are calling kind of the renaissance of, of Mexican cinema um, in the past uh, couple of decades. You, you've worked with, I mean, in addition to Alejandro Enrique, who you've worked with since almost the beginning of, of his career, you've worked with Guillermo del Toro on Pan's Labyrinth and uh, Walter Salison on the road. So this is, you've been, you've been very, very busy down there in Mexico, haven't you? Oh, I have, and I have to travel as well a lot. So, you know, it, it, as you know, we have to be where the post-production happens next to the director. So um, this requires some sacrifices. You have to be away from your family for for a long period of time, yeah, but it's always for a good reason. Well, that's right, and and so I met you, uh, you know, when, when you were working on Sean Penn's movie and <laughs> into the into the wild. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He he lived nearby, and I had a pleasure of staying at the at the ranch at Skywalker. And we had a great time working with you on that. It was it's always it was always a treat for for new new sound designers and people to come in and work with us because it was, you know, we, we would learn things from you and it was always a great, uh, it was, it was a great pleasure. Yeah. And for me, it was a learning experience as well. Um, meeting Sean as a director for the first time, it was a, the first time that I work with him and, um, understanding what was he's hearing, what he wanted to, to put on his film. It's, it's, that's an adventure on its own. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and most mostly with Sean because he can be sometimes very brief on his explanations. Very, very, um, you know, he's not shy by any sort of stretch of imagination, but he's yeah. very brief on his explanations, and he wants the results. And it was a, a very joyful experience. And I just saw him precisely that day, Glenn, when we met in L.A. I saw him, and he's. Yeah, and his place in, in Malibu, and he showed me the, the new cut of the new feature that that he's been doing, and uh, we're going to help him again on, on doing some sound design there. Well, so uh, that's actually, it's it's great that you bring that up, because to me, the, the mark of a truly talented, 
you know, artist in our business, but also someone who is, is, you know, easy to get along with. You, you, you look at their resume and you see the same directors over and over and over again. And obviously that's the case with you. You've, you know, you've been working with uh, Alejandro uh, for a long, long time. So I, could you, I'm sure my audience would love to hear, you know, a little bit about your relationship with Alejandro, how you guys got started together um, and, and how you work together. Yeah, you're right. Some of them are more stubborn than others. Uh, <laughs> is, your, your, your word's not mine. Yeah, they keep calling you. And in the case of Alejandro, as you know, we met when we were kids and on, on college. Yeah. And we, we share, as kids do, at that age probably you share music, you know, music mm -hmm. groups and, and specific taste for films. We felt we were film critics and we only wanted to see art films and you know, <laughs> teenagers so it was for us um our, our the only way to really stay away from the monotony of the everyday life in a city and a world that was very different than what it is today mexico in the in the early 80s uh, was a very different world. It, it was like in a in a cocoon, isolated from everything. So if you wanted to see a film that you wanted to, you know, you've been reading about, you had to wait a year to be in the international uh, expo every year in the Cineteca Nacional. So there was one one only one output for those kind of films. Or if you wanted to read about something, you had to wait to be on the magazine kiosk every week, you know, it's forget about social media or computers or nothing. So, so in that world we met and we found our way to continue. And uh, on college, we decided that we wanted to do a film. And they gave us eight millimeter um, tape and uh, film. And we started doing uh, a short film. I'm gonna stop here for for that. So we took it very seriously. We every Saturday and Sunday in the morning, we with a bunch of other friends, we were shooting our short film in eight millimeters. But uh, sadly, we never finished because our uh, our camera broke. And <laughs> we, we never had the money to you know to fix it. Mm -hmm. So that was Alejandro's first trauma. Alejandro was not directing, by the way. He was doing the music. And oh, there interesting. was another friend of us who was directing. Uh, it was an adaptation of a short story by Julio Cortázar. So um, then someone came to me and they told me that they wanted to start a radio station from scratch with people that um, had no experience. And that exactly was me, zero experience. So I told Alejandro <laughs> that we could bring our, our records, our CDs, uh, remember in the early 80s, CD was a very weird object. Yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, this this company was proud to present a radio station that was all digital. And that was very in intriguing to me, very interesting, because I was very much reading everything about digital technology. And I had a few CDs, but I didn't have a CD player because it was very expensive for me. Right. But anyways, we went there. And we took our records and our CD, and we started everything. The rest is history because it was hugely successful for the next uh, six years. It was really, really successful. If you go back to Mexico still, 
and you ask people there, and um, uh, they they remember Alejandro more for the radio days. Well, okay, so so you guys actually had a was it was it a it was a radio show together? We were there all day. He I had the morning shift and he was in the midday shift, but we stayed all day on the studio writing things that ideas and we called them promos. Yeah. But obviously yeah. it was not a commercial promo. It was just what the radio station thinks. And we wrote very obscure or very weird or very funny or very drama. We wrote, you know, wrote radio and produced radio and directed and made the sound, obviously, and mixed it with music. So it, it's a very cinematic experience. Yeah. <clears throat> so and it was enormously successful for for us and after those six years i had started doing some advertising and then he had the idea of writing a script with uh, uh, a former teacher of us in literature his name is guillermo um guillermo um, oh my god how can i forget the name now i'm i'm sorry for that uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, cut that but, out but you know he he's the He's also he went for direction as well on on his own. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he wrote they they wrote the the script of Amores Perros, and that's the beginning of it. Right, right, right. And and so then you went into advertising, and that and that kind of just lead you into doing sound for film. I think what really started was the radio production. You know, that's that's the beginning. Yeah. That's the beginning of it. And in a way, the process is very similar, not only because of the technical side, but also the conceptual side of, you know, you have to paint. In a way, it's more open on radio because there is no boundary, no no image boundaries. That's right. But, um, but to have the concept of the storytelling is exactly the same, and it really helped me to try to not stay in the boundaries of image when I cut sounds for other films. Right. Can you do, talk a little bit about your process of working with Alejandro? Like, at what point do you tend to get involved with the film? Um, I mean, obviously, you guys have worked together so long, I presume that you have kind of a, of a shorthand. How does, he, how does he talk with you about what, about what he wants and what he needs from the track? It's very funny because every process is different for every film with Alejandro. So I'm going to tell you the last two between Birdman and The Revenant. Um, on Birdman, I stayed uh, next to him because he likes that. He likes the, the, the sound editor to be next on the next room to where he's cutting the film. You know, So I stayed there two years as the film was evolving from scratch, from the very first days of shooting. And he was sending images to Steven, and I was just looking at the film and uh, understanding where the film was going. So uh, he li he leaves me a free hand to go around and wander and put some so some sounds, some some sort some music, just to give him an idea of where the film is going to go. Even when obviously that's going to change, he likes me to do that sort of research, and I send him these ideas because obviously he's shooting he's not there at that point and um and i send him these ideas over the internet whatever and i get his feedback so and and then he arrives to the cutting room and he brings the cut 
and then we go into very specifics. But he doesn't care much about the reality because that of the reality of sound because that environment is gonna happen anyway. So yes, we will have the streets, we will have the the backgrounds, we will have of course the dialogue. He cares about the things that are also storytelling and not exactly happening in a very obvious way. To give an example, for for Birdman, he, he was very clear that he wanted the sound coming through the window on Regan's room being very dynamic from when is the afternoon, how the sound of that street sounds in the afternoon, at night when the people is going out of a bar, coming out of a theater, late night in the in in the in the uh, midnight or early in the morning when people are starting to work kids go to school so he wanted to be very the you know clear on how this dynamic changes and it's coming all through the window and uh, so we started in, in investing more time in in those shifts and how the sound of the stairs when you don't see the characters coming down the the um, the ceiling of the theater when they're having a cigarette, they close the door behind them and they walk towards the backstage. And he was very interested in how the 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 stage sounded and the stairs sounded, and you know all those things for him are more important. And for the Revenant was exactly the same, but I couldn't spend two years, <laughs> and I I had another and I had another appointment. Uh, another project and I told him beforehand while we were doing Birdman I told him that I couldn't stay two more years because was it was one next to the other right he was he basically he rolled right into the next into Revenant after Birdman exactly yeah exactly so because we we get along really well and he understood what was the, the my point he said okay but you, you should suggest uh, someone that you know and um, I called a few people that I, I trusted that I knew and they were all busy, and Steven <laughs> Marione suggested uh, Lon, and that was the beginning of that uh, relationship after Lon arrived. It was for long also a learning process, you know, to to get into Alejandro's mind. So I stayed, I stayed working at home and sending him ideas with no image for the Revenant, because he wanted to see how the environment would would be. In not in the obvious way, he 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 was not asking me for for the rivers or the snow, but you know, in a, in a more subjective way. So I started mixing weird sounds, production sounds, and making process with those sounds and cutting some music that I I thought it was interesting to give the aura or the spectrum of the emotional weight that I wanted. So I sent him all these pieces. And then I started going once once a month for a week and meet him. And then we found out that it was a natural process to to go to Ryuichi Sakamoto and ask him to compose the music because a lot of the structure that I was cutting came from Ryuichi and Albanotto because, as you know, we are big fans of Ryuichi Sakamoto since we were yeah. kids. Back into our teenager days, we watched a film from Nagisha Oshima called Furio or Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And and we got 
it was for me like a revelation. Ryuichi Sakamoto is the composer of the score, but it's also the the actor alongside David Bowie. Really? Okay, I've See, never yeah. seen the movie. Yeah, you have to. You have to. For us, it was like a, wow. This is beyond uh, anything that we have, you know, experienced. And Nagisha Oshima did an amazing film later, well, several ones, but that one, that one is for me musically and the light and the sound and everything so imagine many years flashback move forward we never ever in in our wildest dreams even imagine of just you know meeting with Ryuji Sakamoto let alone working with with him and he was so kind that must have been like a dream come true for you in a way yeah but you know it's it's beyond it's beyond that probably because he was so nice from day one Himself, uh, Ryuichi came from fighting cancer on the throat, and um, and he he's well, he's a strong. He came around and he said, "This is even gonna help me, you know, more to to continue." Because he was that excited about working with that's great with Alejandro, and meeting Karsten also Albanotto, who has made many many albums with Ryuichi as well. So that's I I show them <coughs> the concepts that we were thinking about on on the overall environment because Alejandro thought that at one point the it, it looked a lot like a sci-fi film you know the the environmental place and the way the camera is there it it doesn't seem to be uh, sometimes um, belong to the completely realistic way but it's also a Sometimes it's like another planet. Right. I see what you're so, saying. Yes, yes. It, so it, it belongs sometimes this kind of electronic um, aural uh, evolution of sound belong to that image. So it was very interesting and very exciting for us to try that. And also <clears throat> something that we discovered on Birdman, everything has to shift around. All the sounds, you know, you cannot cut a sound and appear and disappear in front of the screen just because you don't see it. That was the first thing we were fighting against. I was talking with the the sound editors telling them, we need to hear the sounds approaching and you need to hear the sounds shifting towards the camera and coming into the camera when you see them. Oh, because you're talking about because of the very long takes and the... Correct. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, as as with as with Birdman, the camera is never steady. There's a few takes that are steady, but the camera is always shifting. And you are, as a viewer, you are the point of view. You are another actor there. You know, sometimes you you know how the, you're the lens. You, know, yeah. you are the microphone. So you have to feel that the horse is, you know, sinking in the thick uh, snow behind you and going around you and then you appears and the river you know you, you have the river in front of you on the screen and then the camera turns to the character the river is behind you but doesn't disappear right so we were always talking with with the um, with the editors with the sound editors and reviewing every scene to keep this coherence if that's a word uh, it make a cohesive uh, 360 environment, you know, and um, I'm very thankful that Randy Tom jumped into the project because 
at one point for the expectations of Alejandro, it got so hectic that we had no time. Sure. And I told him, if you want to reach this goal in this time, it's, it's going to be impossible. And uh, Randy started scratching the first idea with the bear scene. Right. <laughs> the famous and, the uh, famous bear scene. Yes. Yeah. And then and then he after he finished whatever he was doing at Skywalker, he took a plane with two of his editors and they landed in Universal where we were cutting and they took um on the on the reels with me, with the editors that were working there and a few editors, new editors that we we got into a very small army army as the sound can be compared to visual effects it's nothing but we were quite a few number of editors there well you yeah i mean you had to do that because the uh i, I mean i understand the, they were still shooting some scenes even into the summer right the, the the schedule on the film was very very compressed you are very right because um, they ended up with no snow they in were Canada. chasing snow right yeah yeah and alejandro was sh uh, shooting this film was recording the film in a linear way from the beginning to the end so Imagine the anxiety for a director that doesn't have the ending. And he he, he thought that maybe if the ending doesn't make sense, and a, another scene that was in the middle, which the river rapids. So if those things don't, 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 you know, don't glue, don't belong, it can be a disaster. So that creates anxiety on the director. And that's another important process for a sound supervisor to never forget that you are someone who should be really close in the conversation with the director so he understand that he is not lost. You know, he you are the captain for him for the sound and he needs to understand that because he has already enough, you know, problems and worries and he doesn't need that other, you know, concern about, oh, maybe this guy's not understanding what the sound of this film is, you know. And believe me, that has happened to me a lot even when I know him for so long. So I always work on on show him um, work in progress that I know is giving him the reassurance that he needs to understand that we're going in a good way. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I feel like that's something that not, that particular quality is something that not a lot of people pay attention to. But, uh, you know, I saw it happen time and again at Skywalker. I feel like that's, you know, more than half of the battle is just being that reassuring presence for the director, managing the director through the process. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting that you brought up Randy because Randy, I think, is is one of the masters uh, at, at that. He just so, you know, he approaches a situation. He, first of all, he's got that voice. So he just has the he just has this gravitas, right? This this kind of reassuring presence um, that a director can finally say, okay, well, I don't need to worry about this part of the process. This is in good hands. Absolutely. And uh, remember that there is also the side of playing back material for him. Mm -hmm. And that helps certainly for a reassurance or not. You know, it, it can be also... <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, you, you have to work really hard understanding what Alejandro... Once and maybe maybe that's something that I I am in a in, in a better you know shape not only because we speak in the same language the modern language but also because we work for so long that 
some of his notes and some of his conversations, he uses very unique and subjective words to say something. Uh, it was very famous. His word that he, the, the, sometimes the film needed more cacañanga. And um, <laughs> in, in Latin, Latin America, cacañanga is like, it means like there's a lot of more noise or more fat, more imperfection, you know? Yeah. If something is too clean and too perfect and too pristine, doesn't sound real. And as as you can tell, the Revenant doesn't allow that. So no, no, no. We yeah. we added a lot of cacañanga to the sound and and you know some schmutz and <laughs> it has well, many interpretations. I, but it sounds like a fascinating way that you were working with them because it, it's it sounds like from what you're describing, it was almost like your your old radio days. You you, you were working not necessarily with picture, um, but in a much more uh, kind of just design oriented way. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes we didn't even thought about where the scene is ending or where it's going. We just thought that emotionally the sound belonged there. And that was it. And it's like, as you can tell, if you go and watch in detail the film again, you can tell that there's a lot of sounds that are, they, they don't belong to the environment, the natural environment, but they do belong to the emotional narrative of the character. Yeah, I think it, I mean uh, to me I'm always I'm always amazed at at how uh, you know resilient and malleable images, you know, to to having non-literal sound applied to it. Exactly. And the the Revenant is one of the few films that allow you I think to do that. And uh, because because uh, the way Alejandro planned the camera move and uh, and the visuals I think that's that's a that's something as a sound designer that you probably cannot foresee. You you have to prepare for that. So I, I wanted to um, just to ask you a little bit about um, a little bit more about how you how you. Uh, it, it sounds like at a certain point you really started to focus on that intersection of sound design and music and working very closely with Ryuichi Sakamoto. So how how do how did that working relationship work? How did you guys collaborate together? When Ryuichi started sending ideas. Um, again, also with no specific image. He never got from A to B on this scene, you know. He watched the film, and he got inspired by the film, and he started composing pieces that he thought it belonged to the film. So there was an absolute freedom for Alejandro to cut these pieces of sound to to where the narrative was and try and see if they belong. And and that was the very first part of it. Then I I started cutting these elements and giving them a different uh, order and blending them with production sound from other scenes and make another layer, so to speak, of reality, which, which was not the, the first-hand obvious reality. And then... Um, and then Ryoichi received these elements and he started understanding that idea and recomposing for the specific scene uh. alongside with Karsten because Albanotto, Ryoichi was working in New York and Albanotto came to LA and he stayed in another cutting room next to us. So it was very easy for us and, and for me to you know just walk into Karsten's room and show him the idea, or he was showing him me his idea. So, and we brought Alejandro 
So and 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 Ruichi was sending materials also through through Karsten, who's been a six years collaborator in many albums. They both uh, together. So it was in a way it was I don't know if this is uh, the way to say it, but it was a very natural organic process that just happened that way because we we never wanted to put boundaries on the ideas or or where it should where Alejandro wanted to have a seamless uh, area where the sound belongs the music and the music belongs the sound yeah that's so exciting absolutely how much i mean how, how much music is there in the film for alejandro standards there's a lot yeah as you know alejandro doesn't doesn't use a lot of music yeah and um this time it's it's uh, it has a cue and another cue and but because because it blends so well and in a way sometimes it's not as perceptible as, as others you can't tell but there's a lot of music cues yeah i don't you know it's it's it certainly i mean I, I, one of my just little uh kind of pet peeves right now is is you know 120 minute movies that have 115 minutes worth of music in them but i you know i don't did the it, it, you say there was a lot of of uh Ryuchi's score and but it it it, it didn't um it didn't call attention to itself. It, it felt like it very it fit very seamlessly in kind of the overall sound fabric of what you guys were doing, and I thought it was just it was great work. Yeah, absolutely. That that was the purpose, and I don't think it was a hundred minutes of of music, but certainly around eighty eighty minutes or so, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what were I mean for you? What were the what were the biggest challenges uh, uh, for working on Revenant? And I'm, I'm I'm asking. I mean, obviously, you know, the logistics and the scale of the production were always a, that's always a huge challenge. But I think what I'm asking about is is creatively and aesthetically. What was what was the hardest thing to to accomplish on the film? Always with him, the hardest thing is Alejandro himself, and it's the, <laughs> you didn't hesitate at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's always the hardest. So. Uh, keeping keeping good communication with him and being very clear uh, when he he explained me uh, what he wanted to and where he wanted to get the sound and how much time we had I had to be very you know not rude of course but very very realistic with him yes. and tell him it's not going to happen not not the way you're working right now. <clears throat> yeah, we yeah. need we need to re you know we need to reorder the editing. We need to add more hands, and and it's a great moment to you know to to start bringing new new eyes and new ears for us. That's uh, after the bear scene. That's where full time uh, Randy came. And we spent nine months redirecting and going exactly there. And it was very, very difficult because at one point we thought we were not going to make it. And the studio was very supportive and Alejandro was there again asking, you know, we need we need this because we had no time, no matter what we had to release on the 25th. And, uh, and we wanted to reach this goal that seemed to be impossible and there is so much opportunity for sound on the revenant that it was going to be a shame if we didn't 
uh, you know, at least try that. So well, I yeah, think... and, and look, and 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 certainly I appreciate you know from uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention you know Dolby Atmos in this film. I mean, the the long takes and what you're talking about, the perspective shifts. I, I thought it was just a fantastic use of of Atmos uh, in the mix. It, it, it was it just really puts you right in the middle of the action. It is. And um, we we thought very very much it was a very thought mix on seven point one, and um, we we wanted to enhance, obviously with the utmost opportunity of having these specific objects, but we didn't want it to change the overall balance of the seven one because it really involves you. You know, seven point one really really makes the job really well so we didn't want it to change the dynamics of that mix so when you're hearing the Atmos mix of course we have the specifics uh, elements in many scenes but it's basically our 7.1 great well um, Martin thanks so much for taking the time to talk uh, to talk with us today um, I, it's just it's, thank you for waking up so early uh, it was my pleasure it was that. my pleasure no this is I mean the film is a remarkable achievement and you and Alejandro are just consistently doing some amazing work together so congratulations on your BAFTA nomination I know you're about to go uh, get in a car and go uh, Go go off to off to the awards uh, pretty soon, and and of course, good luck two weeks at the, from now at the Oscars. Thank you so much, my friend. Okay, Martin, uh, that's going to do it for another episode uh, of the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast. Martin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Glenn. 